Okay. Hi, everybody. It's Mark Bennett speaking um, here today with Michael Whitehead and Maddie Swan as we consider the prospects of Australian agribusiness right now. And it's really becoming a, an industry of tales, I think, in that COVID sort of marches on and agri as an industry continues to be comparatively resilient to the disturbance that that's creating. But we've always said that the longer and deeper COVID continues, the more bumps in the road that we would actually see. And I think we're starting to see more of those. Agri in general over the last few years has been running a very strong commodity price environment. It's had difficult seasons and uh, now we're seeing COVID impact around global economic downward pressure. We're seeing the Victoria second wave lockdown phase interrupting our industry in different ways. And as this plays out, consumers are perhaps behaving a little differently as well and, and industries and their supply chains are needing to continue to flex. And with all of that, oh, it just feels to me overall that some of the shine is coming off. However, the biggest counter to that right now is the prospects uh, of our season. It's been good to date, more generally good, and it promises so much if only we could have a good autumn to November run of weather. So with that said, as, a, as an overall, we might move into some of our key agri-commodities. All right, well, if we look at our grains industry at the moment, um, we're seeing prices maybe not too bad. Um, we do have a weight of crop uh, globally in front of us and, and high stocks and real prospects of a return to production, especially in areas that have been hit by significant and long-lasting drought uh, in eastern Australia. But, Michael, for some more detail on that, um, how are you seeing our grains markets and industry right now? Mark, the prospects for Australia's grain crop continue to look reasonably good. We have been working on a, a forecast of about 26 million tonnes of wheat coming up for 2021. Uh, that varies a bit depending on where the rain's going. Um, some have gone a bit below that. Um, it had been a dry June after a, a relatively good start to the year, but then recent rains have picked things up, particularly in West Australia as well, so people are looking confident again. One of the big things on this is this is a huge increase, as we all know, over the last couple of years. This is looking like a 71% increase on last year's drought crop. That's really going to mean a lot of decisions to be made by farmers in everything from how to access their contractors, their harvesters, the trucks they'll need, on-farm storage requirements, grain receival site requirements, and then everything from trains to port requirements as well. It's still continuing to look strong. At the other end of it, the world price or the Australian price and the world price is obviously impacted by the forecast of global production. That was looking very strong, so prices hadn't seen any upward pressure from that. But some recent not great weather forecasts out of Europe have instilled a bit of confidence that there could be some upward pressure on prices, though potentially not huge. And if we, if we think of international markets and the price settings there, is that our biggest cue, do you think? Um, or is it more around our domestic feed need, given that we've come off such a low stock situation because of drought over the last year? 
It's really interesting to look at those two particular points, the international price and therefore our export competitiveness or export attractiveness and those feed needs. And what we've seen, for example, in the drought times is that the feed needs can really push domestic prices up high uh, when there is a great requirement there. What we're looking at at the moment is if prices are pushed down by by that world production level, then feed might become so attractive and also with so many cattle being purchased at the moment for restocking or for the longer-term cattle market and a lot going on to feedlots, that could also push that feed demand up. So what does all that mean? At the moment, all things being equal and about that 26 million tonne crop and these continual uh, levels of, of restocking and, and cattle going on to feed as well, not just on the grass, big feed demand, uh, which could potentially push things even faster than the export demand as well. That said, that export demand continues to be strong. We talk about COVID impacts on different agri-supply chains. Grain is going into the staples, uh, particularly in Asia, and it's also likely to be boosted by the food security needs of some other markets, for example, in the Middle East, who may not be able to get some of the supplies they thought they'd get out of somewhere like Ukraine. Michael, we'll talk about this a little bit later in the beef session, but you've got to play it off against the fact that the herd rebuild for Australian cattle just doesn't seem to be coming about. Um, prices are so strong that female slaughter rates are still still really, really high. So we sort of, while people are trying to restock, we're also not going to see a huge, hugely quick um, rebound in herd numbers. So that, that'll obviously have an impact too. It, it will have an impact. That uh, feed demand into the feedlots will continue to be pushed by as we'll talk about in the beef part, that domestic demand for beef and, and also that offshore demand for grain-fed Australian beef. And whilst there have been some quivers in that beef supply chain, it's probably still strong enough to, to keep pushing that strong flow of feed into feedlots. And do we think with um, the barley tariff issue as it plays out with China that there is... I mean, it's hard to tell how how much price that is actually taking off Australian barley. Um, but are we likely to see a lot of export barley redirected into the domestic market, which would further put pressure on grain prices here? We're certainly likely to see a reasonable level of export barley coming back into that market as well. Uh, that's going to be an impact, uh, and that probably will dull prices in a way. The interesting thing is to look at that in the medium term, i.e. the next planting season as well, and there is every chance that because those tariffs look like uh, they're showing no signs of lifting in the medium term, that planted barley in Australia and forecasts for harvested barley will drop reasonably dramatically. Uh, that is going to impact barley availability, barley long-term prices, and, and also potentially wheat prices as well if there's a move by a lot of barley growers back into wheat. I suppose what we're really looking for is a clean Western Australian crop which would capitalise on the protein markets uh, in global trade, which would allow um, a lot of the eastern states' producers to satisfy domestic market as well as uh, the export market. Absolutely. Well, the first thing we're looking for, particularly in the eastern states and in WA as well, is no frosts. And at this time of year, rain is one thing, frost or another. On the second part of it, Absolutely. Uh, if those, those eastern states can look towards those export markets. One other big question will continue to be, as it increasingly is, for so many producers in the east and the west, how much will they choose to keep on farm 
rather than on selling, to put off their decision when they look for a bit more certainty in the market going forward. All right, to Australia's big agri-industry and beef, uh, exciting times. Prices are really high. Uh, we've seen some return to season, which has been great, um, but there are pressures playing out through the supply chains and into markets, not just around the normal demand and supply things, but also uh, COVID-19 and geopolitical pressures. Matty, I might hand to you on beef. What are you seeing as the key strengths in our industry at the minute? Yeah, it's a matter of texture strength, isn't it? So we had last week the Eki breaking uh, record levels at almost 780 cents. So great, great news for for beef producers. That's really mainly because the slaughter levels are down massively, about 30% in the last year, um, and processors are having trouble getting hold of enough throughput, uh, even despite having some closures in Victoria and in Queensland. So uh, finished cattle prices are really strong in Victoria, particularly, but to a lesser extent in Queensland. And that that continued restocker activity, which keeps supporting the industry from week to week to week, still continues. We had some decent rain in New South Wales. It's had a really um, strong um, band for restocker cattle in the Queensland sales coming from the south, so coming from New South Wales and coming from Victoria. So... New South Wales is looking like it's going to have a strong season, so they're all ready to keep buying. There are a few downsides on the horizon, but given how cattle have performed so far, you you, can't, you couldn't be sure that these will ever even hit the hit the price. So exports are falling and falling strongly. Um, we're down 24% year on year. That's mainly because of COVID, but China's just put a tariff on Australian beef because we've gone over our quota levels. Um, and still there's that really ongoing issue of Australian beef being really expensive compared to the rest of our competition from South America and from the US. Most particularly, exports to China are down massively. They're down about 60% year on year. While, strangely enough, US is stable and Canada's, Canada, of all places, is up. So the other really only other thing to talk about is the outlook for the herd rebuild where the female cattle slaughter rate is sitting at way too high to even be considered to be in rebuild phase. So we're looking for a long, prolonged period of low supplies. So think high prices, but um, it'll be interesting to see how um, post-COVID producers' intentions change um, when it comes to the rebuild. And what role is the domestic market having in all of this? Because... Um, we've seen interruptions to meat getting to shelf in the retail setting. We've got, you know, the butcher uh, demand experience has been incredibly strong. Um, can our domestic economy make up for um, what's otherwise proving maybe a more challenging world market as we seek to maintain price and rebuild our herd? It's certainly sitting so far. Um, as I said, <laughs> With exports increasing, uh, sorry, it's falling massively, you, most of that stock is coming onto the domestic market and then you still have processes still having difficulty getting through, throughput. So it all really comes down to that uh, yarding level and slaughter level. Um, if that starts to creep up, then we start looking at maybe the prices coming down a bit because processes can get that through, throughput and there's excess stock on the market. But that's not happening so far. And like I said before, the herd rebuild isn't happening yet. So those two factors, when they... When they Hit each other, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that there'll be a huge influx onto the domestic market. Um, I'm not sure okay. what you think, Michael. 
Maddie, great point on the export markets and where they could go, particularly with some of the dynamics that we're seeing at the moment. One other point to add in there, I suppose, is the currencies. And one of the currencies that's really making an impact at the moment, well, are the ones across South America, the Brazilian ones, the Argentine ones, the Uruguayan ones. Their currencies are going way down against the US dollar, which is making their beef uh, even more attractive compared to Australian beef. And the impact of that is amongst all the other dynamics into the Chinese market, that becomes even more affordable for the Chinese. So that's another thing that these exporters need to watch. Yeah, absolutely. They're not they're not exchange rates we ever really look at particularly closely, are they are they? But it's it's sort of all comes in as part of this looming wave that we've been expecting of of uh, export competition or export market competition. The US, we're expecting you know huge increases in output from them and the increased competition for the China market. And South America just it, it keeps going from strength to strength and keeps it keeps building into markets that Australia have been strong at. So it's certainly a, a risk on the horizon. Speaking of risks, um, if you're a producer right now and you're restocking at these high levels, what can they expect over the next you know, 6, 12, 18 months as they come back into the market to, to sell cattle? I don't know what the rest of you guys think, but I, I tend to think that prices will stay up fairly high. Like I said, that interplay between but producers seeking to restock um, and and the low slaughter rate and the low throughput rate, I can't see any huge jump which would drive prices higher. So, you know, maybe we can't expect the Eki to keep breaking, um, breaking the, their ceiling um, each and every week, but you would, I would certainly wouldn't be see, seeing them drop down to sort of levels we were seeing last year, unless, of course, there's some weather event or some external shock, external shock we hadn't thought about. Maddie, in terms of producers out there, and particularly the the mixed farmers, and as we've seen in the past, the growth in in mixed farming continues, uh, producers running cattle and sheep and grain, what do you think the impact of the current cattle prices may be on the breakdown or the mix between sheep, cattle and grain going forward in the next year or so? Yeah, that's a good one, especially as we're going to talk about uh, the sheep market next. There are real schism between the two two livestock markets, even though most of the fundamentals are quite similar between them. So if we're tossing up between, say we're tossing up between sheep and cattle, obviously cattle are looking more um, more attractive right now. But at the same at the same time, you know, sheep are always a little volatile, a little more volatile. So. Um, You'd probably be expecting them to bounce back at some time soon. So it's really it's a rather difficult set of circumstances for people um, in, in in mixed farming at the moment. As and as always, it probably really relies on weather. Well, speaking of but, sheep, it's been a stellar run, hasn't it? Um, even going back three or four years, we've seen uh, sheep meat prices really lead the charge, and then subsequently wool prices really shot through sort of 1,500 cents and beyond and, um, you know, on low supply, uh, I can't think of a better performing sort of overall commodity in the, in the last few years. But it, I don't know, is it time to be a bit more nervous, Matty? Prices are falling, um, generally still in really quite profitable um, territory, I would have thought, uh, given uh, assuming you've, you've got season to go with it. But... But there are signs of weakness, uh, particularly in wool, but 
but we're also seeing pricing uh, fall in, in sheep meat. Uh, what do we make of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, month after month, we we sat here and marvelled at how well sheep meat's doing, and you know, it's exceeding the year after last year's levels um, and doing incredibly well. Yeah, we've had a we've had a strong drop in the in the indicator. So, national trade lamb indicator sitting at low six hundred and forty cents at the moment. Um, it was over eight hundred at this time last year, but Mark, like you said, is still historically fairly decent. Um, these are not prices that producers would have turned their nose up um, at two or three years ago. So it's not all doom and gloom. And the main factor driving the drop in uh, land prices at the moment is really is that export market um, drop-off. So while it hasn't been as severe as the drop-off in the cattle industry, it has it, the lamb industry is more export market focused. Um, so we've seen a huge number of heavy export weight um, lambs come onto the market. And so that's driven heavy lamb prices down by the 200 cents in the last year. So in contrast, the lighter lambs, the restocker lambs, they've only fallen by about 120. So it's been, it, it, it's been an interesting time and we can't really expect it to get much better in the really short term because we're about to have the spring flush come onto the market. We've already seen a bunch of sucker lambs come onto the market, um, which have interestingly received stronger prices than we probably would have expected. So that's showing there's a real restocker demand out there. Um, but having said that, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to last for the whole spring flush. Um, so restocker in general is still performing okay, but seems coming into that. So a lot of people going through their winter feed gap aren't buying um, new, new stock for their, their uh, farms. And then you've also got the closure of a lot of processing plants in Victoria, where which is really the hub of sheep meat processing. So that's all impacted prices at the moment. Having said all of that, Mark, you started off by saying, you know, should we feel nervous? I don't really think so. The fundamentals are still there of the market. You know, we've got a low national flock level. Um, we've got strong demand, generally speaking. Um, and while export demand has obviously taken a hit, it will come back. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's not as if we're facing huge competition from other nations for Australia's sheep meat. So once people, the supply chains are back up and running, um, and people are back in restaurants and back buying, we should expect to see prices increase and things improve. Maddie, one of the interesting growths in the sheep meat market over the last few years has been mutton, and particularly for mutton exports into the US of all places, uh, as well as the growing amount of mutton exported to China, and it's been going to the Middle East for a while. Where do you see the balance between uh, lamb production and mutton production going forward, um, particularly with some of the disruptions we've seen this year? Yeah, I still see mutton as more of an more of a byproduct um, when you, you're turning over your older older ewes and and finding a decent market to sell them to. So I'm not really seeing it as a niche production market. Having said that, there have been a lot of stories around recent, recently about dry aged mutton hitting uh, restaurant. Um, tables and it being a new um, a new meat that uh, restaurateurs are getting interested in. So it's certainly a growing market. And like you said, the US year on year um, export mutton exports to the US are up 33% um, despite despite everything that's going on at the moment. So really, it's it's an it's an interesting one, but I I don't really see it being anything but the byproduct of land production at this stage. But we'll wait and see.
The other component of sheep, of course, being wool for many producers and for our specialist producers has encountered a pretty difficult market in the last, well, months, but probably the last, what, four or six months, is it? You know, is is it a longer road to recovery or we wonder where the the middle ground is uh, as wool settled? Because it seems to be caught up in a... You know, the the inventory side of wool is a bit hard to see, especially in China. And the retail demand story for wool might be a bit longer impacted through global economic downturn. Is that fair or what are you making of wool right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the overriding fear, isn't it? That that the global economic downturn, which we don't really expect to come to bounce out of that quickly, um, that that will have a real a real impact on woolen suit sales, which is actually one of the biggest um, outputs for for wool these days. Um, so all of those fears have seen um, the the eastern market indicator drop below a thousand cents. So that's a real that's a real change from even just six eight. 10 months ago. So um, it's, it's it's a pretty gloomy outlook out there at the moment for a lot of producers and it's difficult to tell, like you said, whether it's a, this is just purely COVID or is this a return to trying to find what is the right price for wool? Because when we, we've sat here for months, years even, saying, wow, I can't believe wool keeps going up and keeps going up and keeps going up. And there was a lot of scepticism with a lot of people saying, is it really worth what's being paid for. Um, so that question must be playing in the back of people's heads to say, you know, will we ever return to the 2000, 2000 cent level? Um, but a lot of that depends on the behaviour of the major player, China. So they're known to come in and out of markets quickly and to, you know, try to spend a lot of time and money and push the price high to build up their own stockpile. And there was a lot of talk uh, before COVID hit about how big was the stockpile in China, so we're still not really sure of that. And then, of course, like you said, Mark, we've got all we've got a lot of producers holding back wool from auction at the moment. So we really don't know how much is sitting in sheds. Um, we don't know how much oh, we know how much is sitting in auction rooms, but we don't know what that impact that will have for prices in the future, or whether it will drive, drive them lower, whether people will continue to hold in the hope that prices will get better. Uh, we'll just wait and see. I mean, it, there's not much wonderful news to be said for wool at the moment. Michael, it wasn't long ago that we were in China looking at wool and sheep and um, we were hearing a lot about that, the demand side story, not just uh, for wool and for the suit market, as Nettie referenced then, but into the active wear and leisure markets, which sort of seem to be untapping a whole new range of consumers. I wonder why the demand side there hasn't, sort of kept pace or even insulated some of the the falling in demand that we've been seeing lately because in a lot of other categories we've seen online digital sales really continue quite strongly in some economies even though the retail foot traffic spaces have been desperately quiet. Um, what do you think about the future of wool in that sense? Mark, this is once again in agriculture where the weather comes into play. And yes, demand may have slowed down for a number of reasons, as Maddie has outlined, whether it's 
what was already in stockpiles, whether it was COVID uncertainty as well. But in coming months, it's going to get cold in the Northern Hemisphere. It's going to get cold in China. And importantly, it's going to get cold in Europe as well, where so much of the wool and demand comes from into fashionable items. Uh, a lot of the big wool players in the Northern Hemisphere, and China in particular, know this. They're used to these strategies and these forecasts as well. So depending on where their stockpiles and supplies are sitting at the moment, and depending on how much they read that that demand for wool and attire will pick up in coming months as, as the Northern Hemisphere goes into autumn and then into winter as well, this could be something that starts to push things up again. The other part you mentioned about our time in China is that demand for wool, but let's also remember that the ongoing impact of African swine fever into China's meat production and meat supplies hasn't gone away, so that demand for sheep meat going back as well could be pushed up by that too. So it is a space with uh, with some cautious optimism on both of them. Yeah, and I suppose one of the positive things that seems to be coming out of the big drop in wool prices is a lot of people saying, well, hopefully this will attract some domestic processes and even people who wouldn't have considered manufacturing with wool to start manufacturing with wool. So I don't know if you've heard any talk around the traps of people starting to look at wool as a, a viable staple alternative rather than a luxury, but um, that's certainly been the hope. No, well, I think it'd be fair to say that the... The cost of manufacturing in, a, in Australia has made it difficult to be globally competitive and uh, to think of a return to local manufacturing at scale probably would be difficult. However, um, what we are seeing is more consumer awareness um, and uh, a propensity to buy and support local and there may well be positive niche offerings that in combination still could add up to a lot. But perhaps not manufacturing in the typical sense as we think of um, the scouring and, and processing industry as we've seen it before. All right, well, the seafood industry was probably the early hit uh, market from COVID as, as our catch uh, coincided with the China uh, lunar year period and um, along with wine, I guess, it was right up there as an agri-product that was distorted, uh, the lack of trade, uh, the shutdown of the China industry in the early days of COVID really made things difficult here. Uh, rolling forward now, five or six months, Maddie, um, has this sector been recovering or, or still struggling with COVID-19? Yeah, it's certainly not back to where it was last year, but it has recovered really strongly. And this is why we wrote this section, is we want to just to have a look through how, as Mark said, one of those industries that was first and hardest hit actually has coped with um, with the COVID pandemic and how it uh, and bounced back. So the main increase in exports has been around um, the higher value uh, exports, which have rebounded fairly strongly. They were the ones that were most obviously um, worst hit. But we're still sitting sort of per tonne uh, value. We're still sitting at what we were exporting uh, last year, sitting below that. So we haven't um, rebounded fully. There's still a lot of issues still facing the industry, most particularly the available availability of air travel, which is still a major barrier to exports. So a lot of producers are still facing facing the, the issue of not being able to get their produce out and putting a lot of produce onto the domestic market. So there's a lot of... And then stemming from that, there's a lot of questions of whether 
consumers in their lockdown or in without going out to restaurants as much as they usually do, whether they're um, keen to buy as much fish as they as they had previously. So that's sort of still playing out in the market. You know, I think for seafood um, and for some of our other premium agri products, air freight will be it's looming as a very significant issue as we get towards the end of this year. Will passenger travel unlock or not? Most fairly pessimistic about that at the minute. So you would think we'd be needing a bit more continued industry support to allow the freighting opportunity of high-value fresh produce, including seafood, um, as it comes back into season. So that's a that's an interesting watch, and we'll talk more about that as the year goes on. Michael, I was just going to ask you quickly, what's your thoughts around the way that COVID-19 has redirected food from those um, pub and restaurant settings back into retail for home consumption. Where's fish been in all that? I know it's very hard to look at the stats and data in all of this because it's not really there, but is this one of those markets that suffered a bit as a less commonly cooked and consumed at home or has it got some resurgence about it in homes around Australia right now? Mark, it's interesting you talk about a resurgence because it has been fascinating that Australian fish consumption per capita or by household has been going down over the past few years. And that was interesting to think about why. Is it because Australians, by and large, look for something with a different flavour or Australians, by and large, and they get a lot of inspiration off cooking shows, but are looking for something that's quicker to and easier to cook? Um, a number of reasons. At the same time, of course, the export market was staying strong. But the impact of restaurants being shut down has really especially been felt in the fine steak market. And a lot of capital cities in Australia, the butchers, the supermarkets are seeing a lot of good cuts of steak now becoming available and entrepreneurial players having them available by mail order. The trade-off for aquaculture has been, yes, Certainly, the, the fish shops and the supermarkets have had some increase in the amount of fish that would have been going into restaurants as well. But at the other end, and, and particularly with some uh, specific kinds of aquaculture and fish, we've seen the industry maybe go slow on its quotas or slower on some of its catches as well to hold off until some of the freight issues became clearer, uh, some of the import restrictions became clearer. So it's not like there's an oversupply on the market at the same time. Okay, moving along to dairy, a big Australian industry and uh, one of maybe mixed fortunes over the last year or two. We've seen... um, a more domestically focused industry probably support farm gate prices ahead of where international markets have been to a degree. And I'm not sure that we've seen the COVID-related or geopolitical impacts in this industry that we might have seen in other ag commodities as well. And a returning season, really important, Michael, for where farm profitability might be. But how's the overall space tracking uh, through this COVID experience so far? Mark, you're absolutely right that the impact of COVID on dairy wasn't to the same degree or hasn't so far been to the same degree as other industries, such as uh, beef and other ones that have been impacted on exports as well. This is interesting for dairy in contrast to, say, the US dairy industry, where COVID did have a big impact. 
and it particularly impacted with restaurants and schools being shut down, the consumption levels there, and the fact that that demand went down so strongly for a little while that uh, it really disrupted a lot of dairy players there. It's been interesting in that space. In Australia, not so much disruption. There, like other industries, have been the impact of domestic demand and export demand. There has been that uncertainty over export demand and what may mean going forward, and continues to be some, some caution there. But in terms of domestic demand, it has continued relatively strongly, uh, and particularly as Australians have done more and more of their supermarket shopping and more and more eating at home, that's really been beneficial for a lot of dairy products, whether it be liquid milk, whether it be cheeses particularly, whether it be yogurts and others. In terms of the season, and once again, we come back to that whole issue of lack of rain last year and better rain this year as well. Overall, uh, if we look at the year-to-date figures uh, and the annual comparisons, we're looking at dairy production being slightly down. But then to break that down again, the last few months, particularly since around January, February this year, good weather in a lot of dairy areas has meant that it's been better over the last few months compared to the same period last year. And season will have a lot, uh, a big bearing on fodder prices as well, which would support that uh, effort to improve production over time. How, how do we think margins are sitting at dairy farm and processor level at the moment? Are they about right to allow everyone to, to make enough money through the supply chain? Well, I suppose everybody's going to have a different answer whether they're about right. And maybe for any dairy farmer or any of us in any kind of agriculture, they're, they're never quite good enough. But uh, if we look at it in broader terms, we have absolutely seen that reduction in fodder costs. And if we look at the fact that fodder's now uh, more than a third of total overall cash costs in, in dairy farms as well, that reduction really makes things look a lot more attractive. So in terms of an industry trend, that really does make things look a lot better for a lot of players in the dairy sector as well. Arguably for processors, as once again, they'll have their different opinions as well. With the, the latest prices out there as well, they would be seeing uh, what they would probably consume quite reasonable margins right now. The other factor to look at, uh, particularly for the processors, is where the export prices will go from here. Part of that's going to be determined by the global dairy trade prices, which happen on a monthly basis. They have been very volatile, like a lot of things in agriculture, over the last few months during the COVID period. Uh, the last month saw about a 5% reduction after an 8% jump the month before. But uh, a lot of people in the industry think that they are getting back to a realistic level. So perhaps some level of relative certainty is coming back into the export market. Well, we've seen premium priced dairy products into the Asia market, in particularly the mature economies of a Hong Kong or a Singapore and, and into China. Um, do we think that as those economies see a reduced growth rate going forward, that this kind of demand uh, is in jeopardy or do we think that, that we've still got a, a strong place on the shelf at, at, at premium price points in, in dairy and expect that consumption to hold up? When economies suffer hits like have been felt by some of these ones lately, it's always interesting from food and agri-economics to see how much of a hit any food takes, whether it's basics or some, whether it's the premium ones as well. 
And it often happens, and when you look back over previous hits, Asian financial crisis, global financial crisis, that food does take less of a hit. Uh, Households give up other things first. So the impact may be less than we expect. There will, however, be some other things that may impact the demand. Uh, One of them could be, as we've seen with beef, a triggering of a penalty tariff when particular dairy exports from Australia hit a ceiling. And the one that could be on track to do that at the moment is whole milk powder. So we'll see what happens there. The second issue, and it's that... uh, giant gorilla on the other side of the Pacific Ocean is the whole issue of the US election. And why does that matter? That matters because America's biggest dairy producing state is Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a swing state, which is vital for both sides to win if they want to try and win the election. So we are seeing a lot of assistance being provided to the US dairy industry right now. And some of that could well extend into really looking to boost their market penetration in the short term against Australia. So like a number of other agri-exports, that really needs to be monitored as well. I can't believe we've managed to go this long without talking more about the US election. That's amazing. <laughs> I was going to say the US election, yeah, but the US election is playing out across a number of other commodities. The US election absolutely is, Maddie. One of the dynamics earlier this year, as the US and China continued their trade talks, was that China agreed to buy $32 billion worth of U.S. agri-products in a way to extend an olive branch to, to try and calm down some of the trade talks. At the moment, the Chinese are on track to achieve that for the coming year. That means that uh, China, for example, has had to pick up extra supplies of everything from dairy products out of the US to beef, to blueberries, to barley as well, quite in the headlines as well. And to make way for that, other importers are displaced in the Chinese market. That will continue to play out, even with the election, election approaching and afterwards. So a number of Australian export industries are looking at what their US competition is into the Chinese market and how they have to uh, strategize themselves to be ready for that. All right. Well, one of the other big uh, interruptions, of course, that COVID has caused is the, um, the international passenger routes have all got ground to a halt. Michael, with reduced international traffic playing out through COVID, does that mean that foreign investment in Australian ag is going to take a breather or uh, create some kind of interruption to the investment landscape here? Mark, the impact of the COVID disruptions on foreign investment into Australian ag has been interesting because it's come in a number of ways. The first one is absolutely a positive. As we've seen markets, international equity markets be volatile, but as we've also seen demand for food continue to grow, whether it be through panic buying, Uh, In supermarkets around the world, whether it's been countries lifting their food security needs, the focus on agri has increased. What that means for foreign investment, and particularly for Australia, is that a lot of investment capital, more than it did before, is looking at agriculture, looking at the fundamentals and keen to get into it. And what that means for Australia is, as we know as well, in terms of low political risk and efficient agriculture, amongst a number of other reasons, we remain front and centre for global investors, um, a a place looked at for opportunity uh, and a range of places across the agri-supply chain. As you say, however, uh, logistically and interestingly, 
for any investor to finally seal their investment, let's say into Australian agricultural production or somewhere else processing down the supply chain, they need to do their due diligence, they need to come and look at it, tick off everything and sign off. And if people can't get into the country, that makes that whole process very difficult. We're seeing this happen around the world with agricultural investment, uh, but with Australia effectively cut off and potentially until the middle of 2021, that could be an issue. Could we see impact in rural farm values as a result of this disruption, do you think? Well, in terms of the disruption at the moment, there are a couple of things that we are seeing. One is a positive. And we are already seeing a number of entities in Australia very quickly recognise this issue, rise to the challenge, uh, fill that space which is needed in terms of doing the due diligence for trusted offshore partners, being on top of the regulations, making the process as efficient as they can to, to make sure in any way that that capital can come in, even if the people don't. In terms of the impact on farmland values, Yet to be seen, but probably minimal at the moment from some of the early indications. We continue to see enough capital coming in at the moment. We also continue to see enough capital domestically, whether it's that process of consolidation, uh, the neighbours continuing to invest and to build their operations, or capital from other institutional sources in Australia, high net worth individuals, family offices, pension funds as well, the attention on the space, as I mentioned, continues to grow globally and domestically. So as far as that offshore one impacting the ongoing growth we're seeing in acreage prices right now, not looking like it at the moment. And there will be some, I suppose, that have argued that farming in Australia doesn't welcome or even invite foreign investment. But as an industry looking for greater output and to capture the opportunities uh, that market demand could have us do, and this goes right back to, I guess, to the, the ANZ Port Jackson Partners' original Greener Pastures publication. What are some of the benefits that we're being so far, and, and is foreign investment still an important part of the capital base to grow agri into the future? Mark, a couple of parts to that, and you're absolutely right. It's been controversial for a long time, and it will continue to be the subject of discussion in agri and other circles for a while. What we also have to look at in terms of when you call something foreign investment in Australian agriculture, that could be whether it is direct investment, let's say into farms, a direct purchase of an asset, or as is probably more so the case, foreign institutional capital, pension fund capital, coming into a fund which is managed and controlled by Australians, which then farms large areas, but importantly brings efficiency to those areas, brings greater sustainability, brings greater productivity, brings greater technology. And when that grows in some of these major operations, a great benefit of that to the whole industry is that the lessons learned there can be picked up by producers of all scale and sizes who wish to take it on. And so a rising tide lifts all boats. It's a benefit to the whole industry. That's so much of what that capital gives Australian agriculture the opportunity to do. Michael, FERBs seem to be taking a bit of a tighter stance at the moment. Do you see that having much impact on, on appetite for investment? Maddie, in a period like the one we have of unprecedented and, and quite different disruption than we've ever seen before, things like FERB were always going to take a step back, 
look at the landscape again, take into account a whole lot of factors and work out where they go from there. And once again, this is absolutely not unique to Australia. We're seeing this happen in a lot of countries as they look at how much the playing field actually changed. What we will probably see in the months coming up to the end of the year is more clarity coming out of this from Australian and other governments as well, where they work out where they'll go forward in these kind of things. One of the other things to take into account is like a, a million processes across the world, whether they are bureaucratic chains, food supply chains, whatever there may be, there have been unavoidable slowdowns in things too. So, so let's watch that process. Let's see some of the political dynamics which will be recorded, reported, some of the bureaucratic machinations, and I think we'll have a, a clearer picture of where that's going closer to the end of the year. Well, thanks, Matty and Michael, for the discussion today. And to everyone, I hope you've enjoyed covering the ground that we have. It will be a fascinating uh, discussion again, of course, in a couple of months when we'll know so much more about how the spring has unfolded. Uh, it's easy to get caught up in the shorter-term bad news that's impacting some of our industry right now. But I can't help but think uh, that... Uh, the fundamental underlying drivers that have supported our broader range of commodities to date uh, are still well in place. Uh, there's something taken off the edges and um, notwithstanding, uh, a really good season will make up for a lot of that. It doesn't give us the chance to perhaps capitalise the way we might have liked, um, but let's hope that we do avoid that frost that long rain through spring into summer um, that would otherwise create difficulties for us. Uh, look forward to the discussion next time around and wish you all the very best. 